We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 2 today, so I want to encourage you to get your Bible and let's look to uh, that passage, Acts chapter 2. In the gray dawn of of an April day in 1945, a pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was executed. And he was executed by a special order of uh, Heinrich Himmler, who was Hitler's executioner. He had been arrested uh, two years before, and, and uh, over that two years, he had been transferred from prison to prison to prison, uh, from um, um, uh, Tegel to Berlin to uh, Soenberg uh, and finally to Flossenburg. And... In moving from all of those places, Dietrich Bonhoeffer became disconnected from anyone, everyone that he, that he knew. And, uh, he lost, according to his own testimony, the most precious possession that he had, which was fellowship. Fellowship. See, in the years before, uh, his imprisonment, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together, based on Psalm 133. And in that book, he writes about the richness of fellowship. And uh, here's what he, he says. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. The physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God How inexhaustible are the the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Let him who has such a privilege thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in fellowship with Christian brothers. End quote. And indeed, it is the grace of God that allows us to enjoy the wonderful gift of life together in Christ, what we call fellowship. And sometimes we don't realize how valuable something is until it's, until it's taken away from us. It's kind of like when the, when the when the power goes off and suddenly you just realize that just about everything that we do in daily life is, is dependent upon electricity. And in a similar way, fellowship touches just about every aspect of the Christian life and has some kind of, of influence on it. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's been that way from the very beginning of the church. Uh, the book of Acts tells us that the church began on the, the day of Pentecost, uh, shortly after the, resur- the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you remember that the, the Spirit of God came upon about 120 believers that were gathered together waiting for the promise of God. And, and he came in a very dramatic way. Suddenly, the people began to speak with other languages so that the other people that were gathered in the city from all the different nations could hear the message in their own language and understand. Uh, 
And, and with that, Peter stood up and he began to preach the gospel. And in verse 41, he says, uh, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, what were they added to? They were added to the church. They were added to the fellowship. And that was the beginning of the church. And, and immediately in verse 42, we're introduced to the life of the church. Now let's begin reading together in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they began selling their, their, their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the gift of fellowship. And Thank you for the life that you have given to your church to, to face all the struggles and all the challenges and even all the wonderful things together. And Father, I just pray that today that you would help us to, to come to a new appreciation for this gift in our lives, that you would help us, Lord, to make adjustments in our lives as we need in order to take full advantage of what you have given to us. And I pray that you would use this time now to strengthen your, your people and your church and it would bring glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want you to note closely the two contexts, uh, that the early believers met. Uh, they gathered together for corporate worship in the temple courts. Uh, a, you know, the, the, the one central place where the Jews met to worship. They met in the courts. And then they gathered together in homes, in, in smaller groups. And, and it, you see, it wasn't either or, it was both and. And, and this has been the, the constant theme throughout most of the history of the church. Church, the church has gathered in large groups for corporate worship, and then they have gathered in smaller groups for fellowship. And of course, that there was, uh, you know, there were exceptions throughout history when the church had to go underground because of persecution and those kind of things. But for the most part, uh, smaller groups have been tied to the health of the church. Tom Rainer 
is the uh, president of Lifeway Research. And Lifeway is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. They produce all the, the materials that we use in our, in our Sunday school and many of our Bible studies. And, and it's a, it's a great, uh, organization. And, um, uh, Tom is also one of the leading researchers in the nation, uh, relative to all things, uh, the church or Christianity. And, um, he says that while he was doing a, uh, leading a research project for his book, High Expectations, he was, uh, he, he was, he received a wake up call about the power of groups. And he asked his research team to review the records of hundreds of church members who had joined their churches five years earlier. And then he asked the staff of those churches to identify the people who were worship-only attenders and people who were involved in some kind of groups, Sunday school, um, other kinds of, uh, or other kinds of small groups. And the results were staggering. Those church members who became involved in some type of group in the church were five times more likely to still be involved in their church five years later. Five times, not not five percent, not ten percent, not even a hundred percent, five hundred percent more likely. And that doesn't include those who moved to another community, those who became incapacitated during that time, or people who even passed away during that time. And he said this was so astounding to him that he had to go back and recheck all the records just to confirm that it was, that it was true. More than 83% of those who joined and were a part of a small group were still active in their churches five years later, whereas only 16% of those who attended worship only were still active in a church five years later. Now, when someone like Tom Rayner, who's done so many research projects and even read even more, says that these numbers are staggering and significant, you know that they really are. What's the point? The point is, we cannot grow effectively as a Christian in isolation. We can't really grow in our spiritual lives separated from other Christians. While we certainly need to be in large group settings, we also need to be connected in groups, small groups of some sort. Whether you call it Sunday school or discipleship group or, you know, life groups or family groups or whatever you call it, you see, we need to be connected with other believers. It's vital for our spiritual growth. Why? Why are small groups so powerful in local churches? What is it about groups that increases assimilation up to five times and sets us up for uh, spiritual formation in our lives? Well, the answer in the Word is fellowship. And, and, and you can see this very clearly when you look at this New Testament passage about the beginning of the early church. It's, it's very clear here. 
Now, we don't have time to exegete the entire passage today, but, but, but I want to call your attention to three characteristics of fellowship that are critical for our spiritual growth. First, I want you to understand that the basis of fellowship is salvation. You notice that it all starts with the conversion of these 3,000 souls. And it began when they, when they heard the truth about the resurrected Christ and they were convicted of their sins. And Peter made it clear that they had nailed Jesus to a cross and that they were, according to the predetermined plan of God, they had, uh, they had crucified him and that Christ was dying on the cross for their sins. This was very, very clear. But God raised him up from the dead. And he put an end, he says, to the agony of death as promised in the scriptures. And with that, as Luke uh, puts it in verse 37, they were pierced to the heart. Now, what do you do when you realize that you are guilty of not only rejecting the Messiah, but of being a part of torturing him to death. Well, that's, that's the question that they ask. They say, well, what, what do we do? And Peter says in verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent means to have a change of mind or a change of heart that results in a change in the way you live. What does they need to have a change of mind about? About who Jesus was. That he was indeed the son of God. They need to have a change of mind about their, their sinfulness in rejecting him. and Their guilt before him. And see, and now, instead of identifying with the godless men who had crucified Christ, now they are identifying with those who proclaim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. They've identified with them through baptism, and they have entered into the fellowship, the church. Now they've been forgiven of their sins, and they have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself indwells these people. Now they have a relationship with God. God is indwelling them. But you see, this relationship, it not only goes this way, vertically, it goes horizontally. Because now they're relating to other people who have that same spirit, the spirit of God. And so you can't relate to God and have his spirit in you without having the Spirit of God that is in other people, a part of that. In, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, clearly the basis of fellowship is salvation. When you become a believer, you enter the, the fellowship. You are a part of fellowshipping with other believers, with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They all go together. 
You can't separate them. And the proclamation of the gospel, see, is not intended to create individual, isolated Christians. The goal is not just individual salvation from hell. It's not just individual forgiveness. The goal of the gospel is fellowship with God, fellowship with Christ, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and fellowship with other believers. Those who are in the fellowship, you see, have a a shared purpose, a shared power, a shared ministry, a shared testimony. You can't have fellowship without salvation. You can't have you can't have salvation with God without fellowship. See, if you're separated from God, well, you can't have fellowship with Him. If you're separated from God, you can't have fellowship with other people. And by the same token, listen, if you don't enjoy fellowship, if you don't enjoy being with other Christians, you should be examining yourself. You should be asking yourself, am I really a Christian? Because there's every likelihood that, that that's the case. John says fellowship brings great joy to believers. It all begins with salvation. And then uh, the second point is this. The nature of fellowship is sharing. You know what strikes you about when you read that passage? Is, is the common shared life these people had. It was very common, everything they had in common. Verse 42, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to, and to prayer. Now listen, listen, look, I want you to take note of these words. Continually devoting themselves. Continually devoting themselves. Does that describe your life as a Christian? Continually devoting yourself to what? To the apostles' teaching and basically to fellowship. You see, the word fellowship here is inclusive of everything else that you see in this passage. It's the word of God and it's everything else. All these other things that they were doing, that comes under the category, the heading of fellowship. Breaking bread, see, eating together, fellowship, pray, prayer, praying together, fellowship, selling their possessions, giving them to people who have a need, fellowship, uh, even getting together to worship in a large group, getting together in groups in the home, fellowship. All these things fall under this heading of fellowship, of sharing. The Greek word uh, or Greek verb uh, koinos to fellowship is used eight times in the New Testament. Seven of those times it's translated to share. To share. Uh, the, The noun fellowship the familiar word koinonia is used about 30 times and it carries the same idea. Sometimes it is translated sharing. Sometimes it's translated contributing. 
Sometimes it's translated partnership, and sometimes it's translated participation. The concept is then very clear. It's partaking, contributing, sharing, linking together in common partnership. See, the nature of fellowship is sharing. And we share a lot. We share relationships. It's by nature, fellowship is relational, right? You can't, you can't have fellowship without being relational. And, and it always occurs in the context of other people. God made us in his own image. And God is a triune being. God is relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we see in the book of Acts that the church is intensely relational. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not something that happens on Sunday morning. It's, it's not salvation and then you wander off on your own discretion. When you come to salvation in Christ, friends, you are embedded into a body of believers, other people. So it's relational. Some time ago, uh, Karen and I uh, met up with some old friends from a previous church. That's been like 23, 24 years ago. And because they now live in another state, uh, we met in Huntington and we had, we had dinner. And after some pleasantries, uh, my friend Jeff says, do you remember the snowstorm? He had this big smile on his face. The snowstorm? Oh, yes, I remember the snowstorm. I mean, you know, that could have been any number of snowstorms, but we knew what snowstorm that he was talking about. He, he was referring to this huge blizzard that had dumped about three feet of snow on our area and knocked out the power for most people and stranded many of our church members who lived in rural areas and up hollows and all that kind of thing. And after that snowstorm, Jeff had this enormous truck. It was really high off the ground, had these huge wheels, four-wheel drive. And we spent days uh, going up in hollows and checking on people, digging people out, taking them food and water and medicine. And for those days, we were drinking coffee and, and, and working hard and doing all that and just having an incredible time. And we just started to reminisce about all those things, you know. I mean, we walked in and just right then we're just picking right up where we had left off. And, but my point is not the snowstorm per se. It's the connection that we had after 23 years. You see, why? Why do we have that connection? Because Jeff and I were in a group together. Jeff and his wife were one of the first people to be a part of the little Sunday school class that we started, Karen and I started, in that little church. And it grew from there, and it grew uh, greatly. But out of that, that group, we were doing everything together. You see, we were eating together. Uh, we were playing together. We were ministering together. We were uh, studying the word together. We were doing everything together. I mean, it, it was incredible. And did you notice the word I kept using there? 
together? See, look at verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. And that's a shared relationship. You know, we have that here. And a lot of us, we have, we, you know, we could, if we were separated by time and we could, we would connect back up, we would know. We could, we could talk about so many things. We, we even do that now. There's a connection that happens, a relationship, a sharing of a relationship, a sharing of life. We, we also share ministry. See, in verse 45, he says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were serving one another together. They were meeting needs. You know, one of the great things about being a part of a group is that when you have a need in your life, there are people there ready to meet that need. I see this all the time in our church. You know, there's a, there's an illness, there's a sickness, there's a birth, there's there are all kinds of things, a, a, a death. And there are people who come and minister, who serve, who give of their lives. I've seen people give tremendous gifts that nobody in this church knows about. Tremendous gifts, sacrificial gifts to help other people in hurting needs. It's not projected up on the screen. It's not put in the financial reports. And nobody nobody can kind of quantify all the things that people do in service and helping other people. Every group kind of acts like a church within a church in many ways. And when someone's sick, there are people there to pray, to encourage, to bring meals, to mow lawns, to provide child care, whatever it is, meeting needs, ministering together, sharing life, sharing ministry. And see, ministry is more likely to happen with people who know each other well. And the primary way we can get to know other church members well is by being in groups with them. Listen, it is really vital for your life to be involved regularly in a group. We, we, we not only share uh, relationships and, and ministry, we share teaching. See, in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Learning Scripture takes place in a lot of different contexts. There are, there are three that have been really consistent throughout the, the life of the church, the history of the church. Of course, preaching the Word is, is paramount. Paul is always talking about the importance, the primacy of preaching. Uh, for example, when he went to Corinth, he, he, when he says, When I came to, to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened the door for me. Why was he coming to Troas? To preach the gospel. I'm coming to preach. And when you see, when we sit under the, the, the preaching of the word, we're learning truths that from the scripture through a preacher. You know that, that God designed it that way? Preach the word, he says. And God gives men the gift to do that for the benefit of the church. And we also learn the Bible in our own personal study. You know, one of the things we're doing right now in this series, we're encouraging you to read the Bible every day for yourself. 
get your app, get your your uh, uh, your study guide, and and read the scriptures. Read it every day because you can grow personally. And, and I know many of you. I've been hearing you say all the things you're learning as you rereading the scriptures in, in, in this time. A third way we learn the Bible is in smaller groups within the church and. It may be a Sunday school class. It may be a discipleship class. It may be a Wednesday prayer group. It may be a a men's study or a women's study. But there's so many opportunities for us to be involved in those groups. And, and, And some of the most powerful and poignant teaching occurs as we interact with other people studying the same passage. You know, that just happened Wednesday night. I just saw it happen Wednesday night. Someone, we came in, it was a little early, someone had a question about something going on. And just in the course of answering a question, there were several other people who said, wow, that really helped me. That was, that was really beneficial. Sometimes, you know, it's just because in a, in a, in a situation like this, nobody's asking questions. Thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but in, a, in a small group, you've got the opportunity to ask a question. You've got the opportunity to, to interact and to interject uh, thoughts and be of help to other people. And the passage in, in Proverbs 27, 17 certainly applies to those who are interacting in a group. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. You know, I remember the, one of the first people that I ever heard teach in a small group was a man by the name of Frank. He had a tremendous impact on my life because he had a way of teaching the Word in such a relational way. When I, when I was in a class with him or in a group with him, I never felt like I was being taught so much as as I was relating to him. He had a way of taking the scriptures and, you know, and making it alive for me and for my life. And, and I wanted, I wanted to be like him. I saw his maturity. I saw his grace. I saw his, uh, ministry. And I wanted to be that. You ever see that? Do you ever see people that you want to emulate? You see, that's called maturity. That's, that's what happens. People who are on the lower level of maturity, we, we look up to people who are higher, and we aspire to go to where they are. That's part of discipleship. That's just the way it is. Kids, they want to be like adults. And you see, teaching is a, is a powerful, powerful impact in our lives and our growth. And we, we, not, we not only share the teaching, but we also share evangelism. In, in Acts uh, 47, verse two, chapter 2, verse 46, so praising God, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, when someone is saved, it is almost never the result of the effort of one person. I mean, it's almost never. Salvation is a shared effort. For for example, almost every Wednesday night, 
we pray for lost people. Almost every Wednesday night in this church, we pray for lost people. And if people are being saved, don't you believe that it's in response to to prayer? Don't you think that has an impact? And it, it may not be somebody we know. And it may not be us doing the sharing. But praying is a part of that. If I lead someone to Christ... It's almost always because someone else has already had an impact in that person's life. As Paul says, some people sow. Some people throw the seed. Some people water. Some people cultivate. And some people harvest. Oftentimes when we see people saved, it's, it's the harvesting that is a result of all kinds of things. Of prayer, of, of lifestyles, of serving, of loving, of sharing, of, of doing the work in people's lives. It's a, it's a joint effort. We share in that. When someone is baptized, what do we all do? We all rejoice, don't we? Because there, we have another person in the family of God. So, you see, the nature of fellowship is sharing. We share relationally. We share ministry. We share teaching. We share evangelism. We share so much more. This is just a few things. Let me tell you something here. Not going to be too popular. (laughs) Okay? Uh, So I'll just prepare you. I want to talk to you about the danger of fellowship. The danger of fellowship is self-centeredness. Now, fellowship is this wonderful thing. But I think that the contemporary evangelical world has lost much of the great reality of the life of the church. We've missed out on so much. Part of it is because uh, evangelicalism today uh, appeals to people on the basis of what they want. We've kind of taken a marketing approach. We've looked at people out there and we said, what do they want? And we think, okay, we'll provide it so that they will come. And then we'll have an opportunity to, you know, uh, to preach to them or to, to share the gospel with them. But, but what happens is that we, in doing that, we often present to people the idea that Christianity is something that gives me what I want. And it becomes a very self-centered, self-serving mentality. It, see, see, that kind of thing doesn't, Promote sacrificing yourself for the needs of other people. It's the opposite of that. It's self-indulgence that we often appeal to. You know, back in the uh, back in the 1980s, there was a Jewish humanist by the name of Neil Postman, and he wrote a book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death." And in it, he, he laments the, the death of what he calls serious thinking. He says that, uh, uh, that our, that serious thinking has been being replaced by entertainment. And the only, uh, uh, you know, redeeming value that he could see in that was that as the screens were getting larger, that it would allow for more and more people to, you know, see things together, uh, kind of in community. 
What uh, Postman could never imagine was that even though the screens were getting larger, that they would be for individual use. He could never imagine the massive screens that we have today that are in homes. And, and Postman could not have seen that at the same time, while screens were getting larger, larger, paradoxically, they were getting smaller at the same time. Larger, 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 smaller, smaller, smaller. And our society is now beginning to see the result of this. The seductive entertainment has gone from the big screen to the small screen. It's gone from a group experience, a public experience, to an intimate, personal, private experience. As small as an iPhone. And see, every person now becomes the creator of their own private world. And it's a secret world. It's a secret world of preferences. It's a secret world of temptations. It's a secret world of relationships. It's a secret world that has a force and a ubiquity unparalleled in human history. And most sociologists now say that the small screen is the most selfish necessity ever devised. Isn't that an interesting term? Selfish necessity. Once you had a phone to talk on, no more. Technology has put in our hand the most constant, incessant, accessible, private world of self-centeredness and temptation, entertainment that has ever been conceived. Now, now get this, pay attention. Now we are continually devoting ourselves to a virtual world. Did you get the contrast? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And now we're continually devoting ourselves to a virtual world. Wow. I don't know if that hits you or not, but it sure hits me. And think about it. When I... I was traveling back from Kansas City this week and I looked out over the airport and I thought, man, everybody in the airport's praying because they were all like this. All had their heads down. Everybody's looking like this. I mean, it was just, I mean, I wish I just, I wish I could take a picture of that, that place, this huge airport, you know. And everybody like this. That's the world we live in now. And see, you choose. You choose everything. You choose your entertainment. You choose your music. You choose your relationships. And no one knows. You become the God of your own little world. A little screen which you create the world that you want. Uh, you're the creator of your own private universe. Professor and, and theologian, uh, and chair of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, Carl Truman, he writes this. He says, the language of friendship is hijacked and cheapened by the Internet social networks. 
He says, and he, he goes on, he says, we don't even really know what friendship is today. We call it friends, but we don't really understand what friendship is. We don't understand that relational value. And he says, the language of Facebook both reflects and encourages childishness. Childishness, he writes, has become something of a textually transmitted disease. Why does he say childishness? Because what is most characteristic of a child is complete self-centeredness. And Carl Truman says that relationships play out in the disembodied world of the web. By the way, did you know that the latest statistics show us that uh, the average high school student is looking at their small screen about nine hours a day? Nine hours a day. And Truman writes, such are human amoebas subsisting in a bizarre non-world that involves no risk to themselves, no giving of themselves to others, no true vulnerability, no commitment, no sacrifice, no real meaning, and no value. Let me just tell you this, why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because real fellowship cannot exist in a virtual world. It takes real people. It takes openness. It takes honesty for us to really be able to grow. And you see, one of the things that the the virtual world does, it allows us to create the image that we want to project. Where we're, you know, we find ourselves being beautiful and indomitable and intelligent and 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 wise and cool and self-actualized and we project that on the screen for everybody to see this is who I am this is my great life and when reality is that's not really life that's not who we really are we have real needs we have real hurts we have real struggles and it's all dangerous because it's a, it's a secret world. That's one of the reasons that we have now the statistics say that 68% of men are regularly viewing pornography. I still question those, those statistics. I don't, I just can't imagine that. But if that is true, this is part of the virtual world that we live in. And and that may be tolerable, that may be understandable if it stayed outside of the church, but it doesn't. And you see one of the things that it's creeping in on us. And I want to tell you, don't get caught up in thinking that's life. We need one another. We need real people. We need to be involved in the lives of other people. We need to be continually devoting ourselves to the Word of God and to fellowship. For some of us, the next step is to be involved in a group. To be involved more fully in the fellowship and the life of the church. It will be to your benefit and it will be to the benefit of the church itself. You will benefit from other people, and other people will benefit from you. Maybe the next step for you is engaging in fellowship. Father, we thank you this morning.